Word. We have been, those of you who've been with us, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and so we're up to chapter 7 in Hebrews in this series that we've called Jesus is Better. If I haven't met you, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the elders here at City Light South, and it is my privilege to be able to, to unpack and open uh, God's Word for us uh, this morning. And I hope you've been enjoying this kind of journey that we've been going through Hebrews so much that we can learn and know about Jesus, the Lord, from only that we find here in this book. Now, um, I, was, I was asked by my family, actually not all the members of my family, but by at least a couple of them to tell a dad joke this morning, just because. I just don't really know any good ones, so I had to, I had to look one up, and I'm, gonna, I'm probably gonna get it wrong, so that's just gonna make it even more awkward for all of you, but it's this. Um, the question is, um, what do you call what do you call um, a short, a short psychic who has just escaped from jail? No? A small, medium, at large. There you go. There's my, there's my dad joke. Some of you laughed. Thank you. I feel better now. All right. So one of the other things I can tell you about um, myself is I'm one of those dads, if you go on holiday uh, with me, I like to stop and sort of take things in. I like to read the signs at museums. And so some of you are like, I will never go anywhere with you. That's kind of like how my kids feel. Um, I like to take stuff in. Um, and so since I've got the microphone this morning, what I'm going to do for us this morning is kind of take in some of those details in a Hebrews chapter 7, which is kind of an obscure chapter in some ways. There's a lot of stuff we read and go, what is he really talking about? Because you've got to have a little bit of a background knowledge of the Old Testament to really understand and see, follow his argument. But this chapter, just like chapter, all of chapter 7 to 11 in Hebrews, are really designed to make a, help us make connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, to see how Jesus was kind of predicted, previewed, foreshadowed, if you like, in the Old Testament story in those themes. Hebrews 7, where we are this morning, is going to zoom into one particular theme. And Josh really introduced us to that theme a couple of weeks ago. It's a theme of Jesus being the high priest, the fulfillment of uh, the priesthood, and how that is very significant for us, for our hope, for our salvation. This is the big idea from chapter 7. I'm going to give it to you up front. It's this. If you belong to Jesus... And I hope you do. If you belong to Jesus, then he is your now and forever high priest. He is your now and forever high priest, which makes him the guarantee of your now and forever hope. Jesus is your high priest now and forever, which makes him the guarantee of your now and forever hope. That's the main idea from chapter uh, 7. Now, the Old Testament, this is why I, I, I know that when we start talking and thinking about the Old Testament, some of us tune out, some of us go, man, it's just too hard. But just think about for a second, the Old Testament is the Bible Jesus read. Thank you for that coffee. Um, it is the Bible Jesus read. And the scriptures, he said all the scriptures, the Old Testament spoke about him. The gospel, you see, the gospel that we believe, the gospel that is our hope, is steeped in the imagery of the Old Testament, steeped in the history. And you can't really make any sense of God, the Bible, the gospel, without a little bit of basic knowledge. So I'm going to give you my outline up front. Here it is. Point one, 
the meaning of any passage in the Bible, so the Old Testament, New Testament, the meaning of any passage is discovered through careful observation, not speculation. Point number two, the meaning of any passage in the Bible is determined by the author's intent and by how it functions in the whole Bible. And point three, the meaning of every passage, and here's the the key for us, the meaning of every passage is designed to push you and me further into knowing and hoping in God. So let's tackle these one at a time. But before I go any further, I want to pray and ask the Spirit to help us to, to understand. Lord God, thank you that we can be here and open your word this morning. Lord, we know that we need you to understand what you are saying uh, in your inspired, authoritative word. Lord, so help me as I speak to speak clearly and help us to listen together to what your spirit is saying through your word, uh, that we might be changed, that we might have joy, that we might have uh, just an even stronger hope in the truth of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you have a copy of your Bible, it will help you to have Hebrews 7 open because I'm going to be walking through. I'm going to be referring to some other parts of the Bible as well. But if you just keep looking in Hebrews chapter 7, I think this will help. And I'm going to start by reading just the first 10 verses of chapter 7. The first 10 verses, and I'm going to show you how the author of Hebrews is in these verses making careful observations, not speculations, about a particular passage in the Old Testament. So follow along with me. Okay, Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Let me say this just briefly. He is commenting on another passage of Scripture, which I'll read in a minute, from Genesis chapter 14. So this is kind of a sermon about a sermon, if you like. All right. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the plunder. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they also have descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives the tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So let's get right to the background of this passage. I'm sure there's some things that some of us just find a bit confusing or hard to understand. That's okay. That's why we need to make these careful observations. So I said before, this is a mini-sermon on another passage from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 14, specifically verses 17 to 20. And the preacher here assumes that his readers know the story. He assumes they know about it. And I recognize you might not know the story, and that's okay. So I'm going to read those verses just for you so we can kind of follow along and trace what he's saying. So this is from Genesis 14, 17 to 20. You don't have to turn there. I believe the words are up there behind me. Starting in verse 17. After Abram, and that's Abraham, same guy, 
Um, after Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings who were, in the, who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shaveh Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, Genesis 14 is the background to Hebrews 7. But to understand it, I need to give you a little bit of background to the, to the background. Abram, who's later called Abraham, he was a wealthy guy. He owned lots of, li of livestock. And he lived about 4,000 years ago in what is now called Israel. Uh, in those days, there were kings. Uh, there were lots of kings in the area, and they were kind of like, not like king, like big kings of big, you know, countries today. They were more like, almost like the mayor, the mayor of a particular town. So, you know, not a huge following. They had little armies, little raiding parties that would go around and kind of beat up on the rival kings around them. That's who these guys were. And there was a group of these kings that, when Abraham was around, went and attacked another group of kings. They're kind of like rival gangs. And on one particular occasion, Abram's nephew, a guy called Lot, was living in a place called Sodom. And here comes this group of rival kings. They come and, and raid Sodom and some of the cities around. And he, they end up taking Lot and his whole family and all his stuff uh, captive. He becomes a prisoner of war. Abram hears about it, and he's very upset, and he goes and he gets his own raiding party together, and they go chase these guys down. And he has a fight with these kings. And Abram, because he's blessed by God, he wins the fight, and he rescues Lot and all the prisoners of war, all the hostages, and brings them back to Sodom, where they had come from. Now, Abram absolutely has absolutely routed these guys. They rescue everybody, and that should be the end of the story, except when we get to these verses in Genesis 14. The writer of Genesis, a guy called Moses, he's going to slow down and give us a look at what happened when Abram comes back from his victory. Uh, there's a couple of kings that had the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, and they come out to thank him for his bravery. And uh, the, the king of Sodom, Abram doesn't really want much to do with him. He's, he says, he's, gonna, he's like, you can keep the, the spoil for yourself. And Abram's like, no thanks. I don't want you to tell me that you made me rich. So he, he refuses it. But then the other king is the king from a place called Salem. Evidently, he's a powerful dude. Abram, the one who God had blessed, receives. He doesn't give. He receives a blessing from the king of Salem. But then he proceeds to give this king a tithe, 10% of all the loot that he's just brought back from the, the battle. He gives to the king of Salem. Now, he has a name. His name is Melchizedek. And if you've been following along in our series, we've heard this guy's name before. We heard him in chapter 5, uh, verse 10, where we learn that Jesus was declared by God to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And last week, that same verse was repeated at the end of chapter 6. Jesus became a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So it seems important that we know something about this guy, this king of Salem. There's a small problem with that. Melchizedek only shows up in three places in the Bible. Genesis 14, where he's the original story. Hebrews 7, or Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 that we've read already today. 
And, and then in one other place, in Psalm 110, which we'll look at in a minute. So let's jump back now to Hebrews 7. I want you to see the way the preacher here makes careful observations, not speculations, and what they teach us about Jesus, not found anywhere else in the Bible. So verses 1 and 2 is a summary of what happened in the story about the battle, and uh, he's a lot more succinct than I just was um, in verses 1 and 2. Tells you that his name because he's writing people that probably don't speak Hebrew. So he's like, by the way, Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness. It does. Salem, king of Salem, means king of peace. It does. Um, and what else does he observe about Genesis 14? Well, look at verse 3. He notices that Melchizedek, back in Genesis, he doesn't have a genealogy. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know if he has any kids. We don't know where he's from, really, other than Salem, which is kind of a generic name. Um, why is that important? Well, if you read all of Genesis carefully, you'll notice that all the important characters in Genesis, all of them, have a genealogy. We know who the father is. We know who the kids are. All of them have a genealogy. Even Adam, the son of God, they all have genealogy, except for one guy, Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, notices that. But he wasn't the first one to notice it because I told you there was one other place in the Bible where we see Melchizedek, and that's in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was written by a king, a famous king called David, and here's what he has to say about Melchizedek. So I'm going to read from Psalm 110. This is verses 1 to 4. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor, from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath, here it is, and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Okay, so David knew about Melchizedek. He knew Genesis 14. And everyone agrees that this psalm, who he's talking about, the king priest that he's talking about in this psalm, is the Messiah, the one that God promised he will send to rescue his people. He will be, according to David here, a priest forever. He'll be a priest forever. So what does that tell us? David also noticed that there was no genealogy. He made the same careful observation in Genesis 14. He looked at it and thought, this is weird. I'm going to point this out. Melchizedek, the priest king, he just shows up to bless Abraham. We don't know where he came from. His, it's like his appearance there in the story was completely arranged by God, just like the appearance of the Messiah himself. So now jump back to the punchline. This is Hebrews 7, verse 3. What conclusion does the preacher draw from these careful observations about Melchizedek? He believes and I think he's right, that the divine author of the Bible puts this detail in here about Melchizedek to teach us something about Jesus. Because the way Jesus comes on the scene, the office he assumes, all these correspond to Melchizedek. Now, some people have argued that he doesn't just correspond to Melchizedek, that Jesus didn't just correspond to Melchizedek. The Melchizedek actually is Jesus. They're the same person. The Melchizedek was actually an actual pre-incarnation, if you like, of Jesus. Now, I don't think that's the case because, again, careful observation, verse 3, notice he says, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, or in some translations, he is like the Son of God. doesn't say he is the Son of God. He simply resembles him. There's a pattern. There's a correspondence. 
He will be appointed directly by God to his office, and he will be a priest forever. Hebrews 7 goes on to make just two more observations in verses 4 to 10. First, he talks about the tithe. So in the Old Testament law, all the priests who were the descendants of Levi, they were entitled to collect a tithe from the people. 10% of every family's crops, um, animals, uh, would be given to the priests so that they wouldn't have to do that kind of work. They could focus on the work in the temple. But then what about Melchizedek? Because he lived before all this was law. How could he collect a tithe from Abraham? He wasn't a priest. He lived before the temple existed, or he wasn't a temple priest. The law says only the descendants of Levi could be priests, but here Melchizedek doesn't have the right lineage. Look at verses 9 to 10. Levi was a descendant of Abraham. He says, so in a sense, Levi's unformed body was still a part of Abraham. So in a sense, it was Levi who paid a tithe to Melchizedek rather than the other way around. It's interesting because Abraham, who's the father of Levi, or the great-grandfather of Levi, is the most honored of all of God's people. And here he is honoring someone, Melchizedek, who's even greater than he is. What does that tell us about Jesus who comes on the scene in the order or according to the pattern of Melchizedek? So that's the tithe. The second observation in this section is about the blessing. Confirms this. Verse 7 says, when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, it shows that he was greater than Abraham, and therefore Jesus would be much greater than Abraham. So, you might be thinking, man, this is all like seems really boring, really just kind of focusing on these minute details. It doesn't seem very practical. Preacher of Hebrews thought it was pretty important. David thought this was all pretty important, that this priest like Melchizedek was coming on the scene and that he would be around forever. And both these men, David and the preacher of Hebrews, had a rock-solid confidence in the authority of the Bible to reveal things to us, to reveal true things that we couldn't find anywhere else. Careful observation of the whole Bible. It doesn't just give you big knowledge so you can you know, impress all your friends and win a competition. But if you're like the two guys that Jesus spoke to on the road to Emmaus, when he opened up the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, and he said, all of it speaks about the Messiah. All of it speaks about the priest that would come, like Melchizedek. And, and what happened? What was the result? Not just that they felt really smart. The result, they said, our hearts were burning within us. They felt it in, the inner, in their inner being that these, this truth that's there, it's always been there in the Old Testament, is coming alive to them. It was leaping off the page. And the same thing can be true of you with careful observation and study of all of God's word. So let me move on to point number two. I said first point, all about careful observation, not wild speculation. Point number two, the meaning of any passage is determined by what the author meant when he wrote it and by how it functions in the whole Bible. So let me read this next section. This is verses 11 down to verse 22. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of the law as well. For the one of these things are spoken about, sorry, for the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. 
Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So we need to understand how Melchizedek functions within the whole Bible. And he's going to make some conclusions here drawn mostly from what we read in Psalm 110. How the priesthood of Melchizedek anticipates and teaches us about the priesthood of Jesus. So we learn about from Hebrews how the whole Bible works. I want you to think for a minute of a really popular band. The most popular band you can think of. And even if you're one of those hipsters who refuses to admit that you like Coldplay, I mean, there are just popular bands that are popular for a reason. I want you to just think of them. And then you know that most popular bands end up having tribute bands. They have tribute bands. They come after the band, and they, they intentionally write songs or cover songs that sound like the band that they're paying tribute to tribute band, though, always comes after the popular one. The Bible is a bit like this. If you think about Jesus himself being the climax, the apex of history, and then we have after Jesus come the apostles, come the church, come all of us, and by our lives and by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our lives pay tribute to the life and the love and the grace and humility and character of Jesus. But see, the Bible's interesting because it also works in the other direction. You look, there's all sorts of characters and ideas and themes and symbols that come before Jesus that pay tribute to Jesus. They anticipate him. They establish patterns so that when Jesus comes on the scene, people can go, yep, I see that. I understand why the temple was the way it was because it was anticipating this thing about Jesus. I understand why Abraham was the way he was because it was anticipating, he was anticipating something about Jesus. That's how the Bible is designed to work. And Melchizedek is one of those characters. One of those characters, he's a pattern or he's a type pointing forward and anticipating the priesthood of Jesus. Now, I want to say three things about how that's the case, how Melchizedek anticipates Jesus. So number one, he anticipates that Jesus will be appointed to office directly by God. And that's different from the other priests. The other priests, it just mattered who your dad was. If your dad was a priest, then you became a priest. But not Melchizedek, because he didn't have a dad, or at least we don't know his dad. And he is appointed directly by God, and Jesus is going to be the same. And this is crucial. Lots of people were asking these questions. How can Jesus be a priest that forgives sins? He's not from the right tribe. He's not a Levite. He's from Levi's brother tribe. He's from Judah. And so people are going, I don't know if Jesus can do this. I don't know if he's the right guy. And, 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 and the writer of Hebrews is going, he is the right guy. Because you go back to King David, who wrote Psalm 110, and he talks about a priest who's not going to be a Levite. He's going to be appointed directly by God. 
David predicted it. God, through David, predicted this would happen, that he would be a priest appointed by God forever, not on the basis of who his parents were. All right, second thing, Melchizedek anticipates Jesus' resurrection. He anticipates Jesus' resurrection, and this is important. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and then he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. But a lot of people have scratched their heads at that, and they go, hang on. Where in the Old Testament does it say that the Messiah is going to rise again? It's really not there directly. You have to be a careful reader of the Old Testament to notice it. And so Peter and some of the other apostles, they pointed to Psalm 16, where we read that the Holy One, God's Holy One, will not see decay. And they saw in that a prediction of the resurrection. Well, here's another one in Psalm 110. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Hebrews 7 again. Listen, and this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent. Remember, he wasn't from the right tribe, but based on what? On the power of an indestructible life. For it's been testified you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He makes the point that every priest that has ever existed, every, ever served at the temple, has a term limit on his office. And what's the term limit? Well, one day he's going to get old and he's going to die. And then he's going to be replaced by his son or by someone else that would carry on the service. Who is this priest that is going to be a priest forever? How is that possible? Only if he has an indestructible life. And so far in the history of human beings, there's only one man who we know has had an indestructible life, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. This is anticipating that he, this man, who is a priest forever, will come and he will not die. He will defeat death. He's more powerful than death itself. Finally, Melchizedek anticipates Jesus' resolve, his resolve to rescue his people. And he zeroes in on the oath. He says, the Lord has sworn. He will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. In verse 22, he says, because of this oath, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, we'll talk more about covenants like an agreement between God and people. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, the new and better covenant is what we celebrate every week when we, when we gather at the table. The old covenant says, that if you keep God's law, if you keep God's law and you never break it, then you will be blessed. If you break it, you'll be cursed. The new covenant says that Jesus kept God's law for you, that he offered himself as the sacrifice for your law breaking, and that whoever believes in him, regardless of their moral record, will be blessed. And God says to you right now, he says, you look at Melchizedek and you know that I swear by myself to bring this covenant to pass. So I want to say to you again, it is vital that we are students of the Bible. Our hope depends on it, that we understand what the authors meant when they wrote the, the words that they did, that we understand how their words work in the whole Bible. Each bit of treasure that we find is held up to the lens of the whole book. God's whole plan of salvation, that we might see it, that we might believe, and that we might have life in his name. Which brings us to the last thing I want to show you from Hebrews 7 today, and that's this. The meaning of every passage of Scripture is meant, is designed to push you further into knowing and hoping in God. So let's read the rest of it now, starting in verse 
23. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds the priesthood permanently. Therefore, and listen to this, here's the punchline, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Now, I don't want you to walk away just with extra knowledge for your head. I I want this truth to sink into your heart. So when you sing about Jesus, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, that your joy, your happiness in that moment gets turned up just a little bit more. That's the truth about what God does. Truth in God grows joy in God. And here's what we've seen so far. Jesus is a better priest of a better priesthood. He was appointed directly by God. His life is indestructible. He is completely resolved to rescue his people. So let's bring that to bear on us in 2020. Why does any of this matter? Look again at at verse 24. He's the better priest than all who came before him because he can't die, which means according to verse 25, therefore he is able to completely save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Brothers and sisters, this is you if you're in Christ. He's talking about you. The truth about Melchizedek points to the truth about Jesus so that you can have, listen to this, so that you can have complete confidence that you are completely saved. So that you can have complete confidence that you are completely saved. Jesus didn't forgive some of your sin. He forgave all of your sin so that you don't have to keep coming back to the altar over and over and over, year after year after year, because when he sacrificed himself on the cross, he said, it is finished. That's all. It's done. It's complete. His sacrifice was enough. He doesn't just save people who clean up their acts first, who feel really sorry about their sins. No, away with all of this. He is alive. His life is indestructible, which means right now, At this moment, whether you are listening to me or not, whether you're engaged with what I'm saying or not, whether you feel sorry for your sins or not, whether you remembered or whether you forgot to pray this morning, he is praying for you now. He's interceding for you now. He is the sacrifice for your sin now. Every single day, he is carrying your name as your high priest before the mercy seat of God on the basis of his blood But not only is Jesus' life indestructible and eternal, his life is completely spotless. See, that's why his sacrifice was acceptable, because he was holy when we are not. He was spotless when we are not. He was perfect when we are not. He is sinless when we are not. If it wasn't, the sacrifice was no good. But friends, look at verse 26. There we see he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. No human priest could ever say those things. You can't say those things. I can't say those things. Can you imagine an animal 
a bull, a goat, a ram, saying those things and, and, and being exalted as an animal, a dead animal above the heavens. No, these were symbols pointing to the very Son of God who offered himself and would thereby be exalted above the heavens, which means that now because what Jesus has done for you, Jesus can make you holy. He can make you innocent before God. He can make you undefiled. He can make you perfected forever. He can lift you up into the very presence of God himself because he is your high priest, because Jesus, your high priest, like Melchizedek, because of him, you can have complete confidence that you are completely saved. If you belong to Jesus, then he is your now and forever high priest which makes him the guarantee of your now and forever hope. Friends, I, I want each one of us here to have this kind of confidence in your standing before the Lord because you have such confidence in Jesus Christ. And this kind of confidence, it only comes from careful and worshipful study of God's word. Because, listen, he's not writing to Bible college students here. I mean, he is, but he's not just writing to Bible class. He's writing to all of us, just ordinary people doing it tough. And he said, this is the secret to your hanging on. Secrets, the secret to joy. He says, you can go back and search the Old Testament, search the scriptures for gold, and the Spirit will give you eyes to see Jesus leaping off the page. Here in City Light South, we want to be students of God's word. We want to be growing as students of the Bible, not just as an end in itself, but we believe that knowing the God that's revealed in these pages is the essence of life. It's eternal life. It's why you were created. It's why you exist. To know him and the one that he sent, Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, can I invite you to discover the truth about him that is revealed in Scripture? I'd love to, to sit down with you, as so many of us here would as well, to introduce you to the one who made you, to the one who, who knows everything about you, so that you would come to know in the depth of your being how much he loves you. Listen to the words of the, Bible, of the Bible. This is from 1 John 4. It says, this is love. Not that you and me loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son Jesus to be the priest, to be the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins so that you might be covered by the blood of your high priest and you might be saved and that you might be filled with joy that overflows forever. Believe that it's true. This is the testimony of the Bible from beginning to end. Let's pray. Lord, we come now before your throne, before your throne above, knowing that we have before you a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on your hands. My name is written on your heart, and I know that while in heaven you stand, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Come now, Lord, and make us priests to each other as we remember the sacrifice of our high priest, as we worship the lamb who was slain,
as we take refuge in the power of his indestructible life, make us hungry and thirsty for the righteousness revealed in Scripture. And may we daily grow to depend on these things, being more true than we depend on anything else, more than coffee, more than our families and friends and co-workers, more than our intelligence, more than our resources. We depend on you, Jesus, to save us by your mercy now we pray. Amen.